You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordchurch.org. Today's message comes from our executive pastor, Vincent Pavone. So what I'd like you to do is if you can uh, kind of fill in the rest of the phrase, I'm going to share part of that. If you know the rest of it, you can just, you know, speak it out. So uh, here goes. Like sand through the hourglass... So these are the days of our lives. That, that, that happens to have been, and I don't even know if that program is still on, but it was one of the longest running uh, daytime soaps over like 54 years or something like that. Uh, like sand through the hourglass, so these are the days of our life. And, and you know, it, it's so funny, but the older you get and the more the sand runs out, it seems like it's going a whole lot faster. But in reality, it's moving at the same rate of speed. It's just a perception. Uh, it's like me. I, I can't believe I'm only 39 years old. You think that's funny? Okay. Uh, so here, here's the truth about that statement, and that is that life is short. I mean, basically, isn't that what we're saying, that life, life is short? In James 4.14, it says, a man's life is like a vapor. That's even shorter than sand going through an hourglass. A vapor is just like here one moment and gone the next. So help me with the next phrase as well. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. eternity. That's from the gladiator. Uh, And uh, if if you take those two statements and you believe that they're true, then what that ought to do is, is create in us a sense of urgency. Because if what we do in this life has a profound effect upon eternity, and if what we are doing is living this life and it's only a vapor, then we must go about our life with a sense of urgency. Uh, speaking of you know, mortality, I, I got a couple of uh, inscriptions that are found on uh, gravestones. Very interesting. I think you, you might like it. Number one, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> I like this one. Rest in peace, Cousin Hewitt. We all knew you didn't do it. Kind of wonder what he was accused of doing anyway. Here lies good old Fred. A great big rock fell on his head. This is real. I'm not, you know, joking. Uh, now, this one comes with a disclaimer, okay, because uh, this is not the way a man ought to feel about his wife. Anyway, here lies my wife. I bid her goodbye. She's resting in peace, and now I, so am I. <laughs> Just a couple more. Hen- Henry made one little blunder. Now he's lying six feet under. And I like this one because of the way that it's spelled on the, on the tombstone, and it's spelled D followed by five U's. And then D-E. And do you know what that means? It's, dude, this really was a killer wave. <laughs> but here's my favorite one of all. Ready? Na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey-hey, goodbye. <laughs> Isn't that great? So let's get serious for the rest of this message, okay? What will the phrase be that kind of sum- summarizes your life? What will you like people to put upon your uh, gravestone. Maybe you don't want a gravestone. Maybe you just want to wait until the Lord comes, and that would be wonderful as well. Now, 
let me just mention a couple of people. David, for example, King David. Uh, I don't know if David had a tomb inscription. If he did, I wouldn't be surprised if it basically said this. Here lies the man after God's own heart. And what, a great, what a great statement that was. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit in both the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Here lies, or David was the man after God's own heart. And, and that means that David was known for his love of God in his generation. In spite of the fact that David had lots of flaws, you know what this tells me? It tells me that we're not defined by the mistakes or the flaws or the sins that we've had in our past, but rather we're defined by how much we really love and how much we really love God. Take the life of Moses, for example. Now, I, I know Moses didn't have a gravestone because no one knows where Moses was buried. The Bible says that it was the Lord who buried Moses, probably because the Lord didn't want the Israelites to make a shrine out of him and, and to make an idol out of him. And so the Lord buried him. But if, if we could summarize Moses' life, it would be th this simple phrase, the law came by Moses. And even though God wrote the tablets of stone with his own finger on, on these tablets, right, these concrete or whatever uh, stone tablets, yet Moses is known as the lawgiver. And that was the identification of, of Moses, and it principally speaks about his life. And, and John, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John writes, the law came by Moses. But a wonderful contrast is this, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was given so that it would drive us to Christ as our Savior. And uh, what a great testimony that was as well. I think it's really important for us to think about our mortality to think about this, the span of life as being short so that we can be motivated to, to do what is, what is in our best interest, what is in the best interest of the Lord and the kingdom of God. If you're uh, here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for being here. Uh, our heart's desire is to see you come into a loving relationship with Christ. And you're going to hear me talk about loving the Lord this morning. And, and you might say, well, how's that possible? How could, you, how could you love someone that you've never seen? Well, you, did you know that there's a scripture that says that Peter, writing to a group of believers in that first century, said, though you haven't seen him, yet you love him and have a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory because you believe. See, w we can see him who is invisible. In fact, that's, that's one of the verses in... Uh, a great chapter about faith that Moses endured seeing him who is invisible. But we, we can see him, but, but no longer do we have to imagine what God is like. We now know what God is like because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God has communicated by the language of his son. Literally, Jesus is in his person what God is like. And he's made himself known to us. Amen. So we're going to talk a little bit about a woman's story this morning. That's the title of, of my message today. It's a woman's story, and we'll get a little bit more detail about who that woman is in just a few minutes. But what we're going to see is a story of unabashed love and devotion to the only one worthy of such an extravagant devotion and love. The story that I want to talk to you about is found in the Gospels, and it's found in Matthew, Mark, and also in the Gospel of John. And so those three writers 
think that this was pretty important, and so they included it in their Gospels. In fact, we know that Jesus identified this story, this woman, with the Gospel. He said that wherever the Gospel is preached, this story is going to be told and, and retold. And what we will see this morning is an act of love that demonstrates that no sacrifice, no service, no gift, no outpouring of devotion could ever be too great for the one who sacrificed for us on what was the cruelest form of execution and suffering. So again, I ask the question, what, what will summarize your life? What, what will people say about you in the next generation? Or, or what kind of legacy will you leave your children's children? Her name was Mary, and she left a legacy of extravagant love and devotion that people talk about even today, several thousand years later. Now, only God knows how many times her story has been told and retold because Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done has, will be retold and told again. His intent, I think, is pretty obvious, and, and that is that it would inspire others to become generous lovers of God. For if loving God is one of the most important things, the most important thing is the first commandment, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then there can be nothing more important to us than this. So let me kind of set the stage of this portion of Scripture in the gospel, okay? This was just a handful of days now that this took place right before Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane for the very last time. Here is where he will sweat those great drops of blood followed by his arrest. A few days prior to all of this taking place, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is the, is the man who had been dead for four days and was buried. Imagine, imagine the corruption that his body must have experienced in a Middle Eastern climate, which makes that miracle so extraordinary in so many ways. Not only did Jesus defy death, but Jesus obviously reversed the effects of the decay or the corruption that he obviously experienced, and also, in addition to that, also healed whatever it was that initially killed Lazarus in the first place. This was, in my opinion, the catalyst that, that drove the religious leaders to plot to kill Jesus. This was like the straw, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, because now we've got to get rid of him. Because if this spreads, if this, if this, what he has done spreads, how could we resist him? And so if we're going to maintain our power, we've got to get rid of him. Now, the event that occupies our attention took place in, this, in the village of Bethany, excuse me. And that was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and a fellow by the name of Simon who had been healed of leprosy. There's some 17 people that are in attendance at this meal that is being thrown in honor of Jesus. And Lazarus is there. Imagine, imagine, imagine Lazarus, dead four days, raised again, and now, and now you're in the room with Lazarus. Imagine the questions that must have been on people's minds uh, to inquire of Lazarus. Like, what, what was it like? What, what did you experience, right? So we pick up then in Matthew chapter 26, verse 7. While he, Jesus, was eating, a woman, Mary, came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she poured it over his head. Some translations simply say, she anointed his head 
with his perfume. Mark adds this beautiful uh, detail. She broke the jar. In fact, some translations call it not a, 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 a jar, but a box. She broke the box, and she poured that over his head. I guess you could say that Mary was thinking outside the box. She's the first one. And she breaks it, and I, I think it's important that, that we see that she, she breaks it on purpose, and, and that is an alabaster jar or an alabaster box would have been of some value in and of itself, but it's like Mary is saying, I am not going to reserve even this empty jar for myself. Every, all of its contents I give to you, Jesus. It's a gesture of obvious manner in which she's showing complete loving surrender to Jesus. The people that were in attendance must have watched this. I mean, I can imagine, I can imagine just uh, all of a sudden people are talking and chatting during dinner, dinner, and then all of a sudden there's silence because what Mary is doing is drawing the attention of everyone. And I could just imagine the silence. You probably could cut it with a knife. Now, this is all taking place in the shadow of the cross that is just looming a couple of days from this point. That fragrance that now is, is over Jesus, over his head, over his clothes. And in fact, John also relates that Mary not only anointed the head of Jesus, but Mary got down on her hands and knees and she anointed his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. For a woman to let down her hair in public is a cultural faux pas. It's a sign of poor judgment, but Mary doesn't care. To Mary, the only thing that's important right now is honoring and loving on Jesus. Perfume. Uh, I thought about, I just realized this today. Uh, this was expensive, uh, and we'll go on to hear that it was probably the value of an entire year's salary for an individual. Now, when I first met my wife, although she wasn't my wife when I met her, she was just a girl, uh, we started going out. I was like, I, was I was 18, 19, 19 years old. Uh, our first, you know, Christmas that we were really, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, uh, I bought her an expensive bottle of perfume. Did you ever hear of Joy? I have no idea how much that costs today. But 50-something years ago, it cost me 100 bucks. To me, that was a lot of money. But think about it. If you make $100,000 a year and, and you invest in that bottle of or that jar of, of, of perfume, that's a lot of money. And this was a great expense. Listen, for, for a woman to, to give that perfume, she, she would have been saving that for the day of her wedding. But she doesn't care. She doesn't care. She doesn't care what people think. She doesn't care what people say. Her obvious desire is one person, and that is to an audience of one. And all this is taking place in the shadow of the cross. Jesus, I believe, was divinely or providentially directed by his heavenly fathers orchestrating all this so that his son would be literally a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. But some who were in attendance were offended. 
really revealing the condition of their hearts. Some said, what a waste, what a waste of money, what a waste of resources. But John tells us that the principal critical voice was Judas, and the reason why he was critical was because he was a thief and he was stealing from the collections. Think about that. Verse 8 says, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. Judas probably influenced a couple of the others because it says the disciples. They said, what a waste of money. It could have been sold in the price given to the poor. Not that Judas cared a whoop about the poor because he didn't. He was a thief. But I love Mary's unabashed boldness in a room full of critics. She seems, it seems like nothing and no one is going to dissuade her from doing what she is moved upon by by her heart full of love for Jesus. Would to God that we were all that kind of bold, that we don't really care what other people say about us or what other people think. And John tells us that, he, that the feet of Jesus were anointed as well. Now, now Mary wasn't intimidated. And uh, in Mary's eyes, that extravagant gift, the cost of it, she didn't even consider it. This is just a simple act of worth-ship. And I said that, that, that way on purpose because that's what true worship is. It is considering the worth of the one who is our, our, our adoration and our affection. And in Mary's eyes, no big deal. And here comes the criticism. Notice verse 10. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said, why criticize her for doing a good for me? You'll always have the poor among you but you'll not always have me. Now, now listen to this verse because there's something happening here that they don't get, but that Mary does. I tell you the truth that we're, sorry, verse 12. She's poured out this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. She is being intuitive. She is being sensitive to what Jesus has been saying, and she's acting upon what Jesus has been saying. I tell you the truth, that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and retold. This is what, this is what gratitude to the Savior looks like. It doesn't consider the cost. It just knows that it has to be expressed. You know what? You could waste your life on, on worthless trinkets. You could waste your life on, on worthless treasures. Or you can waste your life on the most important treasure of all, and that is Jesus Christ. And I say waste your life on Jesus Christ because th there is a sense in which, which th there's a calling for us to, to give up our lives. Uh, Jesus said, whoever lays down his life for my sake in the gospel will find it, but whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. What an amazing truth we find that that is. But this costly gift that was given, I mean, what is that in comparison to Christ himself and to have Jesus? And if we have, have Jesus, really, it is in our best interest to put Jesus first. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, and everything you'll need will be added to you. What we draw away from this sacrifice is that no sacrifice is too great, no offering too costly, no gift too extravagant for the sake of of Christ. Now, interestingly, each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and also John, all connect the events that are taking place, Mary's actions with the actions of that of Judas, to draw a contrast. And look at the contrast. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, 
how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. The contrast could not be more stark. Here is selfless love versus the epitome of selfishness. Judas's act was a pure act of greed, of covetousness. His desire to go out and betray Jesus as a result probably of that gift, that extravagant gift that was given, and, and the loss of that, that may have come, some of it had come his way because of it being donated. He strikes up a deal with the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders are doing that out of their own selfish motivation, and that is to maintain power. People in power will do anything to keep that power. Now, at the beginning of our story, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, here again, Jesus foretells his crucifixion. He says that he's going to be betrayed and he's also going to be uh, crucified. Unfortunately, the disciples were, were slow to grasp or to lay hold of that truth. But Mary, not only she, she hears the words of Jesus, she believes that she acts upon the words of Jesus. Now, the first time that we see Mary is when she's uh, at the feet of Jesus, and she's in her home, right? Jesus is in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and, and Martha's busy. Martha's doing what Martha does. I mean, her gift is serving, and so she's serving, and, and, but now she's serving all by herself, and Mary, her sister, who should have been helping her in her estimate, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she comes and she complains. Here's another complaint. Criticism comes my Mary's way once again. And, and she says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. She's left me to serve all alone. And Jesus, you know the story, says, Martha, Martha, which is a, a manner of endearment when you repeat the name like that. He says, Martha, you, you are troubled about so many things and bothered about so many things, but Mary chose the one thing, the most important thing that will not be taken away from her. And that was to sit at the feet of Jesus. That sensitivity... That intuitiveness has much to do with what Mary is doing right here. The timing of Mary's opportunity could not be better. In just a few days, Jesus would be taken away under arrest and crucified. The disciples, over the next several days, must have felt like everything is unraveling. Everything is spiraling out of control. Things are happening so fast. His arrest, his trial, his execution. I wonder how many of them probably thought about that when Jesus was taken away, the regret for, for, for being critical, but even the regret for not being as devoted as Mary was in showing the Savior that kind of love and devotion. See, Judas viewed Mary's act of devotion as a real waste, but the real waste was Judas himself. And what Judas teaches us in this is that it's not enough to hear the words of Jesus. Let us not be hearers of the word only, but let us be also doers of the word. We have to act upon what we believe. It's not just believing. And once again, Mary here is, is she's misunderstood. She's misunderstood by Martha. She's misunderstood by the disciples. She's misunderstood when she was at the graveside of Lazarus and, and the mourners were, were not understanding what Mary was saying. Don't be surprised that when you put Jesus first in your life, that you will be criticized. And that, and that is, is just the way that it is, and that people will be also misunderstanding. 
few minutes ago, I mentioned that life is short. Life passes quickly. That, that if, if it really is true that what we do echoes in eternity, then, we, then wisdom demands that we make the most of our days. And what the story really also teaches us is that, is that a waste is a real waste of opportunities. A waste of opportunity to show our loving kindness to Jesus because this life is so short. And it really is in our best interest to put the kingdom of God first. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, Jesus said. But whoever desires to yield his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. What are we seeing here? We're seeing here that selfishness really is the nature of sin. It's the nature of original sin. Behind every temptation, behind every every sin is self-indulgence. Because that's what the nature of sin is. And in this way, Adam failed miserably. Eve failed miserably. But there is is a, a new Adam that has come who has succeeded marvelously. Breaking free from the mandatory impulse to serve oneself is the beginning of true freedom. Now, I'm really intrigued by the the fact that this fragrance must have been so powerful that it filled the house. It must have been a strong aroma. And I just wonder, right, how how the providence of God played into this, that God the Father wanted his son to be that sweet-smelling fragrance or that sweet-smelling offering. I asked myself the questions, did the fragrance linger in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat those great drops of blood? Were the soldiers who arrested Jesus, were they conscious of of that fragrance emanating from his body? Because when he was anointed, I mean, it it, it covered his, his head, his clothes, his feet. So he smelled of this fragrant aroma. I wonder if when he was questioned by Pontius Pilate, that Pilate noticed that fragrance. I wonder when he stood before the Sanhedrin and he was questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, did, did, were they aware of that smell coming from Jesus? You know, they say that fragrance has a way of triggering a memory from your past. And it's true, I, I, I've experienced that. And if that's true, then I wonder that these evil actors, if they ever came across that after this event took place, if they ever came across that fragrance, would it be a reminder to them of death? And I think it would have been. You see, when Mary wiped the feet of Jesus, that fragrance was all over Mary, that Mary smelled identical to her Savior. That wherever Mary went now, that 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 fragrance and that aroma was on her. I'm just wondering if the Apostle Paul may have had this in mind. You, you tell me what you think. When he wrote this, now, now, now listen to this, this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I thank God who always leads us in victory because of Christ. Wherever we go, God uses us to make clear what it means to know Christ. It's like the fragrance that fills the air. To God, we are an aroma of Christ among those who are saved and among those who are dying. To those who are perishing, we are a reminder of death. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Amazing. I wonder if Paul had that in mind when he was talking about or thinking about Jesus here and this anointing that took place. If Mary's worth of perfume 
was so expensive, and she gave her best. But didn't God give his best by sending his son to become an offering for sin? Did not, did, I mean, what else could God do to demonstrate his love for us? What, what else could God do to show us truly that we are loved, that we are valued, and we are desired by God? Greater love has no man than this. No, the life of Jesus laid down, the only begotten Son of God, is precious and priceless. As Peter put it, we weren't redeemed, we weren't bought with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or wrinkle or blemish. But what makes his sacrifice so profoundly costly is not just simply that he was crucified, There were many people that were crucified in that first century. It was Rome's favorite means of execution, and there were multiple people that were crucified. That's that's not what made his his crucifixion or his, his life on the cross so valuable. It was who he was. And here in one person, we have, we have perfect humanity and perfect div- divinity. We have the man who is perfect and God who is, who is God being offered as a sacrifice. Men- mentioned a minute ago, what Adam failed, Jesus accomplished and he succeeded. Now, Mary loved Jesus. That's obvious. But Mary loved Jesus because Jesus first loved Mary. And can I tell you that that we could love him today because he first loved us. But if that doesn't blow you away, then, then know this. He didn't love you when you were good or when you were trying to be good or when you were righteous. or No, he, he loved you when you were yet sitting, when you were yet an enemy of the kingdom of God. Father has set his, his love upon us in the person of his son. The Father sent the Son from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave. He's now seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. His ministry is ongoing. He is praying for us. And I thoroughly believe that he's praying for those of you that are here this morning that may not have a relationship with him, that you would come to him, that you would be drawn to him in love. Amen. There's a song that we used to sing some years ago. I used to love singing this song. This song was sung in the coal mines of Wales by the Welsh coal miners. This was their love song. Now, they weren't always in love with Jesus because if you read their history, in 1904, the bars were full, the soccer stadiums were full, and the churches were empty. But a move of God was taking place in 1904 that was drawing literally thousands and thousands and tens of thousands. It's believed that more than 100,000 people came to Christ within a short period of time. And they sang this song while they were working in the coal mines. Now, it's interesting because they, the Welsh would actually train they called them ponies or horses, to pull the coal wagons out of the, out of the mind. And they would train them. And the way that they would train them was that they would beat them. And, and literally, they would use all kinds of, of obscenities commanding the, the ponies to move. Because I guess it was a difficult task, even for them. 
I mean, they, they were specially bred. They were raised in such a way that they were strong and stout. And after their conversion, after this change took place in these men, they no longer would beat them. They, they were changed men. They, they would no longer use profanity in trying to draw the ponies from doing their work. The ponies would just stare at them and look at them, not knowing what to do. It's true. They were changed. And the reason why they were changed is they were changed by love. And the reason why I'm even telling you that is because I wanted to share two verses from that love song that they called, they, they called it our love song. And it really is some of the greatest doctrine put into lyrics. You see, here in this, these two verses that I'm especially going to read at the end is that God found a way of solving the enigma. God found a way of solving the unsolvable. How could God be just and the justifier of those that believe? How could, how could God be merciful and also just at the same time? Th th those two could never coexist. If you're guilty and you stand before the judge and you know you're guilty, you don't want justice, you want mercy. But how could God give justice and mercy all at the same time? God found a way. Indulge me if you want. Close your eyes for a moment and just let these words just wash over you. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixions, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Gracious love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss the guilty world in love. There's a prophetic verse in the Psalms. It says, Psalms, I think it's 85. It says, mercy and justice kissed and met together. And there's only one place where it could meet together, and that's at the cross, where Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And forgiveness was released to the world because of Jesus' intercession, because justice was being served, because somebody was paying the price for our sinfulness. Wherever the gospel is preached, Mary's story will be told and retold. I wonder, I have no doubt that somewhere in the world today, some preacher is using the same text and talking about Mary. Mary's story meant to inspire it, to provoke us to lead a life of selfless love and devotion by becoming a generous lover of God. For if loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important thing that we possibly can do, then let's follow Mary's example. Now, I said a few minutes ago in the beginning, in the introduction, how, how, could, you, how could you love someone whom you're not seeing? Let, let me tell you some of the ways and the reasons why we love him. Number one, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because of who he is, that, that he is the son of God who in time became a human being, born of a virgin, a man, fully man, fully God, two distinct natures, but one 
glorious person because of who he is uniquely. But we can also love him because of what he has done. He is better to us than we could ever be to ourselves. But how, how, can, we, how, can, how can I love Jesus today? Well, you know what? We need to think outside the box. Jesus said, when you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. When we serve one another, when we wash one another's feet, when we prefer one another in love, when, when, when we serve the body of Christ, that's one of the ways in which we can. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he was boasting about the believers in Macedonia who raised an offering and sent that offering to, the, to those that were suffering in Jerusalem. And he says that, that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. When we give ourselves to one another in love, we're serving Jesus. Our takeaway this morning is simply this. No sacrifice is too great. No offering too costly. No gift too extravagant for the sake of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning in that appeal about Jesus on the cross in justice and mercy meeting, and, and, and you've, you've not had your sins forgiven, you, you don't know if something happened to you, God forbid, today that you would be eternally secure because life is short. I just want to give you an opportunity. I'd like to pray in just a moment and ask you to just join with me in prayer and agreement and maybe say some of the same things I'm going to say. And I always say this. It's not magic words. It's the, it's the opening of the heart. So if you're here this morning, would you open your heart to Jesus? Would you say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the son of God. And I believe that you died so that mercy could be released to me, forgiveness, eternal life. I believe you, that you died and that you were raised from the dead. Thank you for loving me. If you said that this morning, please tell somebody. Please share that so that others will pray for you as well. So, Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to share the word of God this morning. And I pray, you, Father, that your people will be thoroughly blessed and encouraged and that we will be motivated to love like Mary loved, to be wholehearted in our love and devotion. In Jesus' name.